Good morning. Welcome to St. Paul's. I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that you send your spirit now upon this place and upon every person who is listening, that what is spoken and what is heard might reveal to us your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask it. Amen. So I want to start this morning with a question. Have you ever been held responsible for something that you didn't have the power to change? Have you ever been held responsible for something that you didn't have the power to change? How did that feel? It's a frustrating situation, right? It's universal, regardless of your age or where you are in life. If you're a student, maybe you've been part of a group project and one person wasn't pulling their weight and and your grade suffered as a result, you're, you're held responsible for this thing that you couldn't change, the other person's behavior. Or if you're in the workplace, you know what I'm talking about. This happens all the time. You get an assignment from your boss, and you, they, but you don't have the mandate to carry it out. I had an early first career in the charity sector. I had lots of different roles, worked for lots of different people, and the thing that stood out to me about a great boss was always that someone would give you a project, it would give you some, whatever they asked you to do, they gave you the authority, the power to carry it out. Because the alternative is injustice, right? I mean, to be alive is to be responsible, to have commitments, and we feel this intimately, existentially, that if you can't honor your commitments, it's a short road to despair, If you doubt this, just observe a young child asked to wash her hands, but she can't reach the sink. To be held responsible in a situation you can't change is another way of describing prison, actually. To be subject to rules that you can't question in a setting that you can't leave. By contrast, deciding to take responsibility can be liberating and empowering. We have three kids and two bedrooms between them. And so our solution here is that we've taken all the beds and shoved them into one tiny little room, and that's the sleeping room. And then the other room is the playroom. And as you can imagine, the playroom with three little girls gets quite messy. So one day, a couple weeks ago, I took my eldest two, who are seven and five. We went into the room, and I said, look, we we looked at the carnage, and I said, guys, you've got to clean this up. And they didn't quite know what to do with that. I said, look, just clean it up. I'll be back. And 15 minutes later, I came back, and the situation was largely unchanged. There were probably a couple more toys that had come off the shelf, but they were sitting there just kind of uncertain how to proceed with this situation. And so I said, okay, maybe maybe I overestimated here. Um, You know what? Uh, I I said to our 7-year-old, I said, Georgia, if if you can just give me 10 good minutes, your 10 best minutes of cleaning here, then I'll come back, and I will help Heloise, our 5-year-old. I'll help her finish the job. Let's, let's try it that way. So I, I took Heloise off, and we left Georgia, and, and I forgot that Georgia was in there cleaning. And so 10 minutes turned into 15 and 20 and 25, and, and finally I remembered, and, and I went back, and I went in the room, and it was almost all the way clean. She'd just been in there doing this incredible job. And I said, honey, this is incredible. I'm so proud of you. Thank you so much. You've done, you've done plenty here. You've done more than your fair share. Uh, come on, you can be done. I will, I will help Heloise finish the job. And so we were walking out and walking down the stairs, and, and she, she paused and she said, actually, I want to finish the whole thing by myself. I want to show mommy what I can do. And she went back into the room, and 15 minutes later, that room was cleaner than it has ever been. 
she had taken this chore that I'd put on her and turned it into a responsibility that she claimed for herself. And the result was profoundly liberating for her. Because nobody can take from you something that you've decided to give. I was claiming her time, her effort, but I couldn't take that anymore when she decided it was hers to give. And I was really proud of her because that, that's not an easy move to make, especially for a kid, let alone for an adult. It, it, when someone's taking from you, our natural instinct is to seize up, you know, to, to hold tight, try and keep what's ours, right? The, the shelves are running bare of toilet paper and sanitizer, so you sweep them into your cart, right? But when we do that, we're just locking ourselves into our own personal prisons tighter and tighter. But it can be a liberating, empowering decision if you can push through and give, if you can take that responsibility for yourself. And that's what we see happening in our scripture reading that we just heard read. Now, because we're in the middle of a story, if you're dropping in for the first time, let me give you a quick recap. We're, we're in the book of Nehemiah, which describes this rebuilding effort after an epic disaster. And that's why our community is doing a long walk through that book right now. And at this point in the story, the people of Jerusalem have returned from exile They've rebuilt the temple. They've rebuilt the wall. Last week, we heard how they confessed their sins before God, but they've still got a problem. And their problem is what we see in the opening verses of the reading from Nehemiah that we just heard read. But see, we're slaves today in the land you gave our ancestors so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its harvest goes to the kings you've put over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We're in great distress. The problem is that they're slaves in the land, and it's their own fault. Now, our passage is really part two of what Karen preached on from last week, which is their confession of sin. We heard from Karen the liberating power of confession, of simply telling the truth about who we are and who God is. And for the Israelites, the confession of their history, of the seemingly endless cycle of making and breaking faith with God, was in a way of naming why they were in the situation they were in back in their land from exile, back in a rebuilt Jerusalem, but still subjects to that foreign power in Persia. And it's complicated because the very king that Nehemiah served is the one who gave them the resources to rebuild the wall, but he's still a foreign power taking the fruit of their labor. So they've got a problem. And what's their response? Well, their answer to the problem is there in verse 38. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and then there's a list of the people who signed it that we omitted for time's sake, and we continue in Nehemiah 10.29. Everybody, in view of all this, we're making a binding agreement, and everybody binds themselves with an oath, a curse and an oath, to follow the law of God given through Moses. So that is, they swear an oath and accept the consequences of a curse if that oath is broken. You see what's happening here? They take personal responsibility for something that was already hanging over them. It's like everybody has to obey the law, right? Because it's the law. It's out there. But this is taking that external, unspoken obligation and owning it explicitly for themselves, saying, yes, we're going to do this. It's a move of freedom. A people from whom so much is taken decides to give to God. And they do it under the Persian king's thumb, but they own themselves by, they, by placing themselves in the hand of God. Because nobody... Not the Persian king and not the world 
can take what you've decided to give to God. So what do they give? Well, let's look at this in its own context and then come back to it to ask what this means for us as Christians because we're not ancient Israelites. They commit to the whole law. Now, in some traditions, there are 613 individual regulations in the law of Moses. That's what they're committing to. But they don't just say, the whole law, we're going to do that. Like, refer to Appendix A. That's what we commit to. No, they elaborate on the specific duties that they're taking responsibility for. And it's basically two parts. First, they say there's a certain form of separation from the neighboring peoples. And second, they say financially and materially we'll take care of the temple. Okay, so first, the the separation from neighboring peoples. Now, it's easy for us as modern readers to look at this and see racism or xenophobia, but that's really not what's going on here. It's about their survival as a people. It's not a comprehensive segregation, like we don't want anything to do with those people, but a particular attention to the practices that were threatening the distinctiveness of the Israelites as a people. Remember that after a long exile, they were now effectively immigrants in their own homeland. And like every immigrant community, they were facing pressures of assimilation, the loss of what made them a people, what made them distinctive. They were feeling the pressure through marriage among neighboring peoples who didn't worship the same God. They were feeling that pressure through participation in the local economy, which asked them to do things week in, week out ways of buying and selling that ignored God's laws about time especially the weekly Sabbath, the rest from work. That was of fundamental importance to the Israelites because it was a day of faith. It was the day by where not doing anything, they said, we don't make the sun come up through our own effort. We can rest in the hands of our God. He will provide for us. So this separation, this economic separation is about survival, but, but it's not just about their survival as a people, but of their specific religious witness. Because the people of Israel are defined not by a physical location, but by their calling from God. He made them a people when he brought them out of slavery in Egypt, when he gave them the land. They're a people with a purpose beyond themselves. Their purpose is to reveal to all the nations of the world the identity of the King of heaven. And that purpose will be fulfilled in Jesus the Christ, Christ which means Messiah or anointed one of Israel. The first thing they commit to is separation for the sake of that witness. And the second part is that they commit to care of the temple, which was the house of God, where their worship was. There's a long list of material provisions for the temple, concluding in the declaration, we won't neglect the house uh, house of God. But it's interesting what's said here. Because if you look through the details about how the temple is going to get the money and, and supplies it needs, the law requires all those things. But there's also some innovation happening here. For example, in verse 34, we see a system to make sure the temple is supplied with wood as it is written in the law. But the thing is, that's actually not written in the law. There's no law that the temple has to be supplied with wood. There's a law that the temple fires can't go out, which, of course, requires a steady supply of wood. And so what the Israelites are doing is a contextual adaptation in this new situation that's necessary to meet the demands of the law in their day. And they commit themselves to it. Look at that language throughout. We assume responsibility. We will. We will. We will. What the Israelites are committing themselves to here is responsibility above and beyond what's being asked of them already. 
they're already under the law of the Persian king. The Persian king already takes their taxes. And they're saying, no, we're going to do more than that. We'll also obey God's law. We'll also give our money and goods to God's purposes. And it's not like the Persian king is giving them a charitable receipt for their temple donations to reduce their imperial tax. So why are they doing this? Because taking responsibility has a dignity to it that their circumstances denied them. Animals don't have responsibilities. People have responsibilities. And taking responsibility is a way of saying, I am a person. And we together are a people before God. We are God's people. It's a way of being free, even in the midst of oppression, because nobody can take from you what you've decided to give. So what's it mean? What's it mean for us to bind ourselves with an oath to follow the law of God given through Jesus Christ, the servant of God? Because we aren't ancient Israelites. And as much as I'd like to say that this scripture just applies and you should show up at my office, you know, because I'm a priest, so you should show up at my office with a, a cow and some wine and olive oil, it's not quite that easy. Because the Christian conviction is that the letter of the Israelite law, the detailed prescriptions, is not binding for Christians. The spirit of the law remains in force. Jesus said, I don't come to overturn the law, but to fulfill it. And he said that to love God completely and to love your neighbor as yourself is the whole of the law. We follow a law of love. It's a law that doesn't say, do this, do that, in every specific situation, but says, in whatever situation you are, specifically, find a way to love. A couple weeks ago, Bishop Jenny talked about the Trinity and how God's being itself is love, and that love overflows to us, and it forms our law. So if we listen closely to Nehemiah, what's it saying to us? Because I think it's saying some specific things to our community in this time and place. The first thing is that as we look to rebuild after the losses of this pandemic, the law of love asks us to take responsibility for the way we live. In fact, I'm convinced that the future of the church in Toronto hangs on all of us taking this responsibility. Your pastoral staff, we, we ache to see this place full, to hear it full of singing. We feel the pressure to bring people back. We think about it. How can we do this? But you know what, we can't make that happen. Because the church isn't a company that's going to get more consumers with a, with a better product. It's a community. The house of God is us. Scripture calls us the living stones from which the temple of God is built. The spiritual body of Christ that is this community and the body of Christ in, in every country and in every time. The survival of this church as one Christian community, as an important Christian community, is going to depend on us coming together and saying we assume responsibility to come back, to take on the binding commitment to be the people of God in this time and place because we believe what God has said in his word and we believe in the promises of God. And like the Israelites, being the people of God will require separating ourselves from those around us. But here's the thing, not in the sense of keeping apart, but in the opposite, in distinguishing ourselves by our love. The law of Moses said the Israelites would be set apart by the Sabbath, and Jesus said that his followers would be known by how they loved each other. And Christians are known for a lot of things, some good, 
and a lot of bad. Let's resolve to be known for our love. And the second thing is that like the Israelites, the law of love requires some specific improvisation. The law mandated to keep the temple fires burning, so they made a rule about who gets the wood. We love God with all our heart and love our neighbor as ourselves. That law hasn't changed, but our context has changed. And that means we can't just come back to the church that we remember, securing the bits that are important to us, but we together need to assume responsibility for the whole of God's house, the whole community, and get specific about our love, because it's not just like good vibes. It's not just friendliness. But it's about specifically loving the people and the community that we find ourselves in. Well, what's that look like? I don't know. I don't have the answer, but I believe it's a question that we're all going to have to commit to taking responsibility for. That when we come back, we will need to gather and look each other in the eye and say, we bind ourselves. We take responsibility. We will give our time and our resources and ourselves. We will not neglect the house of our God, which is the living body of this community in this old place and this new time. And that will be liberation. It will be empowerment in that decision to take responsibility. Because have you ever been asked to take responsibility for something you didn't have the power to change? But nobody can take a heart that you've decided to give to God. Amen.